0: From WFSU Public Media, welcome to Perspectives. I'm Tom Flanagan. Our program, in an abundance of concern for the welfare of our guests and staff, continues to be pre recorded as a Zoom conversation. And it was recorded on Tuesday, February 1st, for on air playback, Thursday, February 3rd. It's Children's Week Florida, and this is the largest event held in the state that celebrates and honors the state's commitment to children, youth, and advocates. And it continues a happening that actually began more than 20 years ago during the tenure of Governor Lawton Childs. And throughout the week, now back to a more traditional format after a little bit of uh, uh, a downtime last year because of the COVID situation. It gives volunteers and partners and advocates an opportunity to, to come together and interact and deliver a, an overarching message that every child should be healthy and ready to learn and able to achieve their full. Potential. So in keeping with the occasion, we have an outstanding lineup of guests on today's Perspectives to talk about kids, what's being done to help ensure that all Florida children, regardless of circumstances, have a good shot at a happy, healthy, and fulfilling life. And it would not be a party without our Dr. Phyllis Khalifa, President, CEO of the Children's Forum. And just by way of introduction... Dr. Phyllis uh, runs a statewide, not-for-profit membership organization that maintains an uncompromising vision to make Florida a state where kids grow and thrive in quality environments and where families have access to information and resources and options to help them in their parenting roles, because kids need parents. They sure do. Dr. Phyllis, it is so good to see you, and happy Children's Week.
1: Thank you, Tom. We appreciate that. We're excited.
0: Want to find out more about, of course, the uh, Children's Forum as we go through today. But we have some award winners, some honorees to talk to today as well. And the first of these is going to be Doug Sessions. He's been a fierce advocate for Florida's children and families and has been kind of in the advocacy business as uh, uh, president and CEO of the Ouncer Prevention Fund of Florida for a full quarter of a century and he has just been presented with the Child's Advocacy Award for 2022 presented by Children's Week Florida. Doug couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Congratulations, sir.
2: Thank you, Tom. That's very nice of you to say. It's um it is quite an honor. I've I've been around this business for so long that that um you know I, I would drink the occasional beer with Lawton Childs. So I go back a long way.
0: Well, and and what a great family! We keep running into you know some of the uh, the Childs uh, progeny on various and sundry occasions, and so the legacy of Governor Lawton Childs continues particularly in this uh, in this part of the world. So it's it's just such a joy to have you on, Doug. We have another award winner though too, who we want to say hi to. And that is Lauren Page, teenage literacy innovator who was named Youth Advocate of the year lauren a sophomore at ransom everglades high school in miami she's made it a a mission in her life to uh, speak up and be an advocate for children and, and youth literacy and a whole bunch more congratulations lauren and uh, welcome to perspectives it's so good to see you today
3: thank you tom thank you so much for having me
0: well, let's kind of work our way backwards here. Lauren, how, how did you get this award? What were, what were some of the criteria, and how did that interface with what you have been doing, as we said in the introduction, of being such a, a powerful spokesperson for children's issues in the state?
3: Well, I am part of a youth advisory committee run by the Children's Trust down at my home in Miami. And I believe last October or so, I was told that I should apply for this award, and we thought it was a long shot because it's throughout all of Florida, and I honestly didn't think that out of everyone who applied, it could possibly be me. And so, um, uh, Mr. James Hodge, CEO of the Children's Trust, nominated me and um, wrote the personal statements, and I put all of my information regarding my organization and all the numbers in and then this January I got an email that I had won and I was amazed, astounded, surprised.
0: Beyond amazed, astounded, and surprised. It's still though had to resonate with you because of everything that you have done in this regard and to think well gosh not just for yourself but maybe for other young people who might not even consider children's advocacy a viable kind of thing I mean there's lots of worthy causes out there for sure but for you to focus on that what kind of message does that send to other young people not only at your school but beyond there do you think
3: It's true. And um, for the past nine years, the message that I've wanted to send to everyone, especially younger children, is that they can do it. They have the power. And when I was in second grade and I started my 501c3 nonprofit, nine years later, I'm here and I'm a sophomore and I was able to do it. And I think that children just need the right empowerment and they can really do anything. They don't need to doubt themselves or leave it to the adults because they can change the world.
0: And you also send a message, I think, to even high schoolers that if they really, really want to get down and involved in these kinds of things, set up a 501c3. I can't imagine doing that in high school, aren't you? you're phenomenal. You really are. Doug Sessions, here, you, you've been in the trenches now again for a quarter of a century with your organization. First off, tell us about that, what it does, and how it does what it does, and how did that interface with the fact that uh, you just got a major accolade uh, in the state of Florida uh, today as we speak, which is Tuesday.
2: Thank you, Tom. The, the Ounce Prevention Fund was founded in 1989, uh, then Governor Bob Martinez and, and uh, appointed as HRS Secretary Greg Kohler, and Kohler had the idea of having a public-private partnership that would give that organization the ability to, to identify, fund, and evaluate programs for at-risk children and their families. Um, Kohler was new to town, and, and he went out looking for people to support this concept, and he ran into T. Wayne Davis and Fred Baggett here in Tallahassee. And together, they they formed the organization, um, knowing that prevention is the key to all of our problems. If we can prevent problems from ever starting, uh, not only does it help the children and their families, but it's an amazing, almost staggering impact on what it costs to serve those children. We've been we've been at it for uh, I've personally been at it now for twenty seven years. And again, I'll I'll tell you, I'm not real sure why they why they picked me for the Childs Award, but I'm I'm awfully grateful, and it's uh, it's always nice to know that that you've been honored uh, in the name of somebody like uh, Lawton Childs and his and his first lady Rhea Childs. Uh, Bud and Kitty were there last night, uh, the governor's uh, son and daughter-in-law, and it was it was just an it was a wonderful night, and and uh, it it back so many memories of of Lawton as governor and Lawton as United States Senator. And I mean I even go back to Lawton when he was in the Florida legislature. So uh he's he's got quite a reputation uh as, as one of the best we've ever had. And it's such a it's just a a real blessing for me to have that award in his name.
0: Well, as long as we're waxing nostalgic and going over some of the history of child advocacy in Florida, uh, Phyllis Khalifa, we have to, uh, again, circle back to your organization, the Children's Forum, which dates all the way back to 1975, which is still astounding to me. How did your organization children's forum gets started and what precisely does it do in the eco-structure of this you know larger overarching children's advocacy role in florida
1: sure when the when the organization got started it was really about bringing uh other agencies if you will that were uh, statewide the agencies were finally had a stream of funding to be able to provide child care for children of low income families more vulnerable children and so these organizations came together they were providing services in their local communities and they you know well, we really need to come together to see how we can leverage what we're doing and to be able to be more impactful in our communities and get the resources we need in order to expand the availability of services statewide so it was a loose, loose, more of an association when the organization first started. In 1989, uh, it was interesting that Doug's organization started that year, too. Um, the, the Children's Forum was uh, incorporated as a statewide nonprofit. And, uh, and so the dynamics changed a little bit. We had opportunities then to apply for resources and funding to be able to support the work and to be able to expand the availability of services. Um, and primarily, lane has been in child care and early education and in those who work with young children and their families uh, and, and for after school populations, for example. Uh, so it's been about really trying to expand the quality and the availability uh, and um, the affordability, if you will, of child care and early education for Florida's uh, citizens. Um, we know that Children who are more vulnerable have less access to resources and to uh, quality services and we know what a major difference it can make in a child's life. So uh, that's been pretty much our space, if you will, moving forward since 1989 is to uh, find those opportunities that we could to support access to those services and um and so we've done it through a number of programs and services that the organization continues to provide but also to advocate and to make uh, our policymakers and legislators aware that if we want to truly change just like Doug was saying about uh, prevention if we want to truly change the trajectory of young children's lives we've got to intervene early we can't wait around we've learned that even the first 18 months are critical in terms of the words that children hear, we know that 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 experience uh, is so important in terms of developing vocabulary um, that we can't wait around until they go to kindergarten. That's too late. We have to truly make a difference early. And that's also where we get into this whole notion of third grade reading, you know, and being proficient readers by third grade. We can't wait until kindergarten to start that. If it doesn't happen birth to five, we've lost ground and children will be, uh, there will be that achievement gap, unfortunately. So um, so our work has just been centered around uh, doing, um, uh, working in that space and and helping to support efforts. What, And, and then when we had the, the opportunity, if you will, to um, get more engaged and involved, let me just give you a little bit of history though in, the, in terms of Children's Week and how that came into play. It was in the 1980s, our organization, the Children's Forum, at that time wanted to do something to bring recognition to children statewide and our work at the time. And so we had this notion to create Children's Day. So we actually had a statute on the book that we got passed uh, to create Children's Day. And that's where the hands came from. We first started doing the hands and gathering those hands from other organizations throughout the state. Well, as time progressed, we realized that other organizations were also doing a day at the capitol and a day here and it was um, you know child serving organizations there was this idea that why don't we come together and do children's week and then we can have other organizations who's interested also have a presence at the capitol uh, so that together we can accomplish more so that's what happened and then uh, so children's week was moving along and of course and then it came uh that when our wonderful governor um just such a phenomenal job on behalf of children. Then we coupled that with our governor's interest. And so it became a more robust and and rigorous agenda on working on children's issues on their behalf. So it's just kind of mushroom to continue to grow. And so we're so excited that we are now back in the space of actually helping to organize and get this thing uh, launched last year. Of course, as you mentioned, it's kind of a lost year. Uh, in some ways, although we still did some virtual activities, we still had a presence we couldn't do the hands on the capital so we did it. Um, in. Uh, the center um, with through the Institute for Nonprofit. What was the name of the, the organization you know I'm talking about, Tom? So we we hung hands there. So at least there were an opportunity for some presence as the legislators are walking from their cars at Clement Plaza or uh, and down to the Capitol. There's something somewhere. Uh, so, but we really missed the gathering. And I think that's one of the things that we noticed so much last night when we were able to, to come together again and to recognize Doug and, and Lauren is just how much we've missed that association with one another because it's through those associations that we grow stronger and that our, our advocacy voice grows stronger. And uh, and it's and while we've done a lot, I'm so grateful for the having a virtual opportunity to communicate and to continue our communications. It just seems like there's so much synergy whenever you can see someone face-to-face and to be able to share what's going on in your organization and in your agenda for children and in your lives. So uh, I think that's the true value. And while we will continue to adapt to whatever environment we have, um, I really do appreciate the opportunity to meet with folks face to face.
0: It makes a big difference and certainly one of the most iconic images from any legislative session in Florida. Are those thousands and thousands of little hand prints in glorious colors that are hanging in the rotunda area of the Capitol, right. Phyllis? Gotta agree with you there. Speaking of Children's Week, that's what we're talking about here on this edition of Perspectives, which is pre recorded. So, folks, please no uh, phone calls or emails, but I hope we can talk about it uh, throughout the year because every week really should be Children's Week in Florida. And, uh, <laughs> You, you mentioned reading, Phyllis, and I'm so glad because we can pivot now to Lauren Page, the, um, the Youth Advocate of the Year, because, Lauren, not only are you a phenomenal children's advocate, you also got some really strong uh, skill sets when it comes to marketing because of the name of that organization you put together, the Page-by-Page the page Book Drive Program. Talk about that, how you got it started, and what does it do?
3: So when I was in second grade, um, my parents always raised me on the idea that community engagement was really important. And so they had me volunteering on Saturdays through using a passion um, that I had at the time and still now, which was reading. And so they had me volunteer on Saturdays and I was reading to children. And what I found when I was reading to these children who had to come to school on Saturdays because they weren't getting enough um, enrichment within the week is that I would meet kids that would be in fifth grade reading at a first or second grade level. When me as a second grader was reading at a middle school or high school level because I was truly advanced at the time. But I noticed that there was a need and there was an obvious difference between us two. And I realized that the opportunity that I had to volunteer on Saturdays, um, I I was forever grateful for, but I really wanted to amplify my voice even more. And I wanted to go beyond the once a week. So I approached my parents and I told them that I wanted to start an organization. And they told me that if I wanted to see change in the world, that I had to do it, but I had to do it myself. And so I approached my friends and I approached my principal and I approached my librarian and I started asking for book collections and originally it was at my house. And then I got a program set up throughout my school and I made announcements on the morning news. And then I realized that my first book drive that I'd collected, um, that I'd started at the age of eight, um, I collected a thousand books and I realized this could really be successful and this could really change a lot of people's lives. So then I started, um, On the Once I started doing more book drives and started going to different schools and setting up book drives in different schools and making announcements on their morning news, I was kind of um, expanding my network of schools all throughout Florida. And then I had people reaching out to me in states in the north and states in the west. And I had people reaching out to me from England and Tajikistan. And we were able to implement page by page book drive programs in different countries and different schools. And then we sought 501c3 nonprofit status, and we got that granted. And it's just really been an amazing journey. So to date, we have distributed over 475,000 books around the world, and um, we have impacted over 3.5 million children. And through COVID, it was really hard to do these book drives because obviously we couldn't go into the schools. They didn't really want outside visitors. So we kind of had to change our tactics a little bit because obviously, Literacy is not something that you can take a break from. It's something that you have to keep pushing for. So what we did is we stopped COVID-19 testing locations so -hmm. that when kids went there, they could go grab a book. And additionally, we made custom boxes pertaining to certain families. And we made those boxes and filled them to the brim with books and dropped them off at their house. So right now of today, we've done over uh, about half a million books. And I just, I hope to keep expanding and um, i'm currently in the process of publishing a children's book to empower them because when i was in second grade without my parents empowerment i truly probably wouldn't have been able to do what i did today i mean the debt to the adults in my life is immeasurable and so um i'm writing a book to empower children and give them that empowerment and hopefully plant the seeds in their minds that maybe one day they can change the world just like i did because i've gone to schools and kids have really been inspired by what i've done And they even when i hand them a business card they just they think it's incredible they think i'm 27 it's (laughs) it's crazy um so it's really really nice to see the change that i'm making in the world and um when we came up with the name it was kind of easy i mean for a while we had a bunch of random different names kind of going through our heads and then we just took what we had my last name and kind of. made it a play on words, and it's become a success.
0: I would ask you what you intend to do when you grow up, but I know people in their 60s and 70s who have not done a fraction in their entire Thank lifetime of what you have accomplished, Lauren Page. That is beyond incredible and impressive. But how do you want to expand upon this? How can you expand upon this, do you think?
3: Well, um, I... So I'm a Girl Scout. So I'm currently working on my Girl Scout Gold Award and that's what the publishing of the book is gonna entail. So I'm going to publish the book and then I'm going to get to at least one library in all 50 states. So that's my goal for that. And then um, I also started a student ambassador program in all of the schools that I worked in and beyond where each year the school chooses a new student ambassador, one that kind of embodies the values that I feel need someone needs to have to truly know the spirit of community service in the book drives so each year they choose a new student ambassador and i supply them with all the flyers they need to hang around the school that i pre-made all of the morning announcement scripts everything so they're all set to create a book drive and each year it's sustainable and it will just keep going on without my involvement and that's something that i'm really am passionate about sustainability because why do this if it's not going to stay for The rest of my life, or or even longer. So, sustainability was a really important factor to me. So.
0: Well, I want to circle back around and ask you uh, what kind of reaction perhaps you have been getting from different uh, folks at the Florida Capitol when you come with that absolute gobsmacking life story before lawmakers, many of whom are, you know, struggling to make an impression even in their home district and here you've gone international already. But Doug Sessions, I I want to ask you about the the Ounce of Prevention Fund, and specifically, how do you do the outreach into those neighborhoods, into those families that really need those preventive services and uh, protocols desperately? A lot of these folks are hidden in plain sight. How do you get to them,
2: Tom? Uh, we have we have a number of of uh, different venues that we use here at the ounce. Um, one of our earliest venues was, was uh, what we call our innovation projects. Uh, we would put out an RFP every year uh, and get responses back and and uh, look at what they were offering and how they were going to deliver that service. Uh, and it was all that was statewide uh, and we would award uh, contracts based on that. Uh, in 1998, um, the legislature started Healthy Families Florida. And uh, asked us to be the the administrator of that project, and we went into all the counties and said, uh, "Here's an opportunity for you to put together these these programs for child abuse prevention." And then we contracted with with um, when when the, when the communities got together and decided who they wanted to run the program in their area, we would contract with that organization um, uh, based on all the all the. Um, the the way the programs operated from a national basis and how they got down to Florida. And then we, make sure, we made sure that they were all on the same measurement scale so we could compare apples to apples every year. Uh, we've been doing that in healthy families now for, gosh, a lot of years. And uh, actually from, from day one almost to right now, uh, in that program, we have 98% effectiveness in preventing child abuse in those families we serve which is just a staggering number. Uh, if you look at, at those numbers, at, uh, those statistics three years out, it only drops down to 95%. So it's, it's an amazing uh, set of priorities that, that uh, that's been put together that, that all these communities are, are, are operating in their, in their localities. Uh, we go back to the legislature every day, every year, uh, and argue for that money and hopefully to increase that money. Uh, we get, we do a lot of fundraising in the local area. Um, we used to require a 25% match, but it was being matched almost every year, so we just eliminated that, and it's still at that level or higher. So it's it's uh, that's one of those success programs that that come along every every 50 years or so. So we're we're real proud of that and the success we've had, and of course primarily we're we're preventing child abuse.
0: And does it help that we are now in a year in the legislature when? We're not awash in cash, but money does not seem to be a problem with all of the revenue estimates that keep coming out. As we uh, move through session, it looks like there might be more money available for these kinds of things, right?
2: Uh, Time, it's, it's like I told the crowd at, at uh, the press conference this afternoon. Um, don't be afraid of your government. Go in there and ask for what you want. There's a lot of money available right now. Um it's always hard for the legislature to, to overcome their own their own biases. So we've we've got to make sure that that the programs that are effective and efficient and, and are being successful um, are right there at the top of the top of the list when when budget time comes, I was, I was speaking with some folks that that are a lot more in the know than I am and it looks like it's going to be week after next when when budget and appropriations process starts in, in earnest. So we'll be over there uh, knocking on doors and Hammered away at it like we do every
0: year. Yeah, make sure you have uh, Lauren Page along with you there. I think that yeah. might be, you know, a really uh, a powerful tool in this uh, in this campaign to motivate if lawmakers can, to open up the I first. Would, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, me first. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Phyllis Khalifa, let's talk here, uh, hanging over our heads, not just the beautiful image of those youthful hands at the Capitol, but also the fact that we are coming off of about two years now of COVID, which has complicated not only everybody's social life and in some cases, uh, tragically, uh, medical condition. But also, what has it done to families and what has it done specifically to children with kids having to learn remotely for long periods of time, families being disrupted, a lot of economic nasty impact in various parts of society? How has that complicated your life and that of other children's advocacy groups?
1: Sure. I think that, you know, like anyone, we are all affected whatever happens and our biggest concern not so much from an organizational perspective because we continue to provide services but there's one program that we operate the teach early childhood scholarship program it's about giving scholarships for those who are working in child care and early learning settings in order for them to pursue their education um, because it's not required in our state that you have a degree or um, you know or specialized training necessarily in early care and education, there's some some training requirements. But I mean, it's it's not required to have a degree. But the Teach Early Childhood Scholarship Program, it actually provides scholarships so that someone can obtain the credentials to be effective teachers and to be amazing at their job and working with young children. And some are, uh, regardless. But uh, this really empowers, because we know that an education provides currency in the marketplace. And so we want to be able to enable those who are working with young children to earn what they deserve to be very frank uh, and and on pa- on parity with their k-12 counterparts with same credentials so at any rate one of the things that we noticed during the um the pandemic was that you know first of all the classes were closed down you know, the childcare programs were closed. Well, these are our teach scholars. And so we were thinking, okay, what's gonna happen with them? Were we concerned about them? Some um, certainly did lose some steam because they, they were not accustomed to online. We had to pivot very quickly to online learning at all of our educational institutions, you know? So uh, we had to help empower the teacher that they could do this, that they could do learning online if they were not familiar with it already. And you'd be surprised at how many of them were still in face-to-face classes. So the other thing we learned is that they also had technology needs. And so thankful for our uh, division of early learning, they allowed us to be able to use some of our resources to do a reimbursement program with our scholars so they could get a laptop or an iPad or something to be able to do online learning. So we had to change. We had to be flexible and adaptable so that we could continue their progress and, and, and working towards their credentials and their degrees in the field. Um, but it was, it's been really tough, though, for I think, our child care infrastructure, because we know that, you know, teachers were really pressed as to, you know, they put their own health at risk whenever and provide care for essential personnel, for example, or others who were still working. And so they struggled with that. So that made, you know, certainly operating a childcare business very um very tough you know for for those out there um then they couldn't find the teachers if they had the children's needs and then they couldn't find the children if they had the teachers i mean so it's been very very tough i think Uh, and one of the things it did it revealed what we all knew for quite some time is it's a very fragile infrastructure for child care it is uh, not one with a high profit margin so it's not like you know come one come all and make a lot of money it just doesn't happen um and we also knew that 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 those who work in in early learning settings that they are really the workforce behind the workforce you've got to have child care available for families to be able to get back to normalcy and to be able to get back to work so uh, i think that there's been a lot of awareness if you will so as much as i hate what's happened and we still have classrooms that are empty because we don't have the teachers to fill them, um, as much as that pains me and pains me for families and children, and particularly those who are most vulnerable, it also revealed how important this industry is for our families and for our children. So I think that's one of the reasons we've had suddenly a pivot at the national level to we need to take a look at what's happening in child early learning, um, and so. I think that's a good thing if you will that's come out of this pandemic now we haven't seen it trickle down yet to all of our uh, our child care programs and early learning settings um but we're hopeful you know that there have been some relief through some of the the federal uh, funding streams to be able to help prop those up until we can get to really good policy solutions and there's some great ones out there that uh, i think will make a difference so it's been precarious it's been tough uh some of our programs we know have gone out of business during this time um it's hard for our centers to get personnel our teachers to work uh in the settings and for a number of reasons and they have their own children to to also be concerned about um But it also it's a time, I think, to be creative and to come up with policy policy solutions that are going to meet the needs of our families.
0: Thank you. Well, well, Lauren Page, let me just ask you kind of the same thing as you were gearing up the uh, your page by page book drive program there. Did the pandemic get in the way or was it pretty much a wash? Uh, After all, you know, you don't have to be in a classroom situation to to enjoy a book and uh, you don't even have to go online there handy dandy little things, boy, they're just pages and you can take them anywhere and you don't have to recharge them or any of the other types of things. Were you able to keep your program on track even through the pandemic?
3: Um, I think that the pandemic um, 100% affected children and their use Mm -hmm. of books. I actually published a research paper last summer about it um, in the Journal of Literacy and Communication and um, I just kind of wrote about the stats and I used information from different colleges about the studies during the pandemic and illiteracy, such as Stanford and and different colleges. And what they found was that the pandemic really did negatively affect those those literacy rates. And before it was bad, but throughout the pandemic, it got even worse. And children were kind of unable to either receive these new books or were limited to these ebooks which cause can cause so many distractions like so many children are not going to go and sit on an ipad and read a book they'll get distracted and go on the web or watch a movie it's just so hard to keep the focus of a good book and when people have that especially children have that book in their hand and they finish it and they close the cover for the last time it gives them a sense of accomplishment and when you're reading it and you see how much you have left it gives you the power to push through and make it to the end But those ebooks they're they're just so different and the amount of limited access children had especially with online school when so many either didn't have online school or weren't paying attention literacy rates really really dropped and the united states Mm -hmm. still really needs to recover yeah
0: you are associated of course with with girl scouts and i know a lot of girl scout troops are literacy mentors they go out into the community, they interface with young kids, many of whom do not have parents who sit down and read to them. And that is a big part of a lot of troops' involvement. Is that something else you're you're looking at to not only get books, but also kind of mentor readers connected?
3: Yes. So um, with my troops specifically, many times we've gone to hospitals where people are definitely very limited. It's been a little bit hard with the pandemic, but We've gone to hospitals and we've delivered cases upon cases of books to kids who are honestly stuck in their position and many times can't go to school because of how much they're missing because of their position. I also volunteer at this place called The Barnyard and it's located within Coconut Grove. And it's um, kind of like an after school school program where parents will drop their kids off um, for the afternoon and you'll teach them how to do homework and. It, many of these kids will be in fourth grade and, and won't know the alphabet. So I've been able to actually teach them the alphabet, how to read, I've read them books because they really find a joy in someone picking up a book and showing them the pictures and reading them the words and they find a joy in seeing that. And so I'm able to have the opportunity to volunteer either after school or on weekends when I visit under-resourced schools to give them books Um, As part of my donations, I'm able to spend time with these children and not only be able to reach them, but also inspire them with the efforts that I've been doing, because many of them are my age when I first started my organization. And so when I go and visit these kids, they really leave with an idea in their mind that they can change the world. And they leave with an idea in their mind that maybe one day they can be like me. And It's really amazing to see how much I inspire
0: people. That's it yeah, human connection and inspiration, very, very powerful forces at work right here. Uh, by the way folks if you miss all or part of a perspectives it's available online on our wfsu.org website we try to have the most recent program up as soon as we can after it airs on the radio so you can hear it whenever you want just by going online Uh, doug sessions back to the covid pandemic here how has it affected ounce of uh, prevention fund of florida or was there any impact for you guys
2: it was a tremendous impact on like, like uh, Laura was saying, uh, it, it, it affected everybody, not just uh, certain areas of the state. Um, all of our, all of our um, healthy families programs, for instance, uh, stayed afloat during the pandemic. Some did um, work from home. It's a home visiting program, so it was, it was tough um, getting some of those homes in a, in a virtual settings so that they could continue to receive those services, but, um, perseverance and, um, uh, just knowing that what they were doing was providing a great service, uh, is the most important thing and the important aspect of, of that, that learning moment. And of course, unfortunately, in some places we're still in it. Uh, you know, we went through, went through the hurricane a few years back up here in the, in the Panhandle, and, and uh, some of those programs are still struggling to, to stay afloat. They are, uh, hook or crook they're going to, uh, but it's been tough, and the pandemic just, just further amplified how hard it is to keep programs like home visiting programs uh, operating uh, in, in times of distress like this.
0: Yeah, not to mention the staffing and, and volunteer needs that can also be impacted by the lack of people that that we're seeing on all levels right now for organizations for businesses everybody seems to be struggling to have enough right on the
2: nose with that
0: well let's see let's go around the table and uh, the virtual table if you will and see since we are coming to you kind of from the capitol here what was the ask for members of the Florida legislature who are embroiled in so many issues and ideas and proposed pieces of legislation and all that. Let's start with you, Phyllis Khalifa. Uh, Have you been able to get in to see any of the folks either in leadership or key positions and committee work within the legislature and say, hey guys, don't forget the kids? Has that been part of this too?
1: Sure, absolutely. Every chance we get, of course, we we continue with the message um part of what we're asking for of course is to continue to fund our existing programs that of, just like doug says we, we keep very close stats and evaluations on our projects and our services we want to make sure it's a good investment uh, so with our teacherly childhood scholarship program for example that's one where we are, we have to go before the legislature every year and ask for that appropriation and we have 10 million statewide for that program and it's been vital to you know, to continue that because we have folks that you know education changes lives and what we know about uh whenever they're a parent for example a teacher receives a degree or credential the likelihood that that child that her own children are going to also go to college and receive um their degree it's and is just astronomical in terms of how much that impacts the family's lives. We know that education matters and it does level the playing field for these families. So um, we we advocate for that continued funding. We also have a project called Help Me Grow, Florida, and that's about helping families to be able to um, access to know where to go, how they connect with services in the local community. Uh, I'm surprised sometimes when I still hear families saying, you know, if it hadn't been for so-and-so who told me that I could get services here, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, that's exactly what Help Me grows about, is to to help connect, make those families, uh, or at least help those families make those connections that are going to make the difference in their children's lives. And sometimes it can be, as innocuous as, I need a screening for my child. I think there's something amiss. So we want to make sure that those developments, all screenings are available. That they're the ones you find that you may have an area of concern. That you get those those linkages, and that it's not just oh here's a phone number call it, but there's actually someone who's going to walk with you and help you to get those services that you that you need to make sure that your children uh, thrive and do well. So that's another area. There's a bill also about just making sure that uh, we have breakfast uh, continued for children in school K twelve. Um, the No Child Hungry group is working on that one. So it's a lot of organizations that come together to work on issues from their perspective that's going to make a difference in, in children's lives. So you'll you'll see lots of folks at the Capitol. book. what I often tell folks too is don't wait though till children's week to go and tell them what your issues are. You've got to establish those relationships at home. You need to have you know that relationship solid that they know that they can come to you when it comes to... An issue regarding what you represent. So, but it is a time when we can come together and culminate with all of our uh, colleagues and organizations that care about children, so that we have a strong impact whenever we have that visual, you know, of um, of activities in the rotunda and on the courtyard in the courtyard um to just strengthen our collective impact i believe is what it's an opportunity and also that other people care about what you care about and i think that's always reaffirming
0: lauren page what do you tell members of the florida legislature when you run into them during your visit up here any specific message or you just bowl them over with your uh, expertise and experiences and background
3: um, well i was able to meet with many representatives rep- Wow, i'm combining words now representatives <laughs> and senators um and it was really really an amazing experience getting to meet all of these different people from these different districts and hearing all of their stories and why they were there and, and um, i ended up telling each and every one of them about why i was here for the award and what i was doing and they were really really impressed and all wanted to connect with me further down in Miami um, to see what they could do to really help um, with the illiteracy stats. So I was very grateful for those experiences and I'm meeting some more later today that I'm very excited about. So,
0: Terrific. We wish you luck with these guys and and I, I think Phyllis is right. Timing is everything and this is kind of top of the mind for these folks right now and to have an interaction with you, I think, is really a good opportunity for education on that. And, Doug, do you, uh, w- what are you telling these folks? What do you need as far as your uh, ounce of prevention fund is is concerned? Besides money, money's great, it's wonderful. But w- what else would you like to have? Uh, you know,
2: <laughs> money's paramount, Tom, and, and, and particularly in the, in the appropriations process period, which we're getting into. Um, right now, we just we ask members just to keep us whole into. To continuation funding is the name of the game. If, if you're in the budget, uh, you have a leg up on that. But but um, these these people have their work cut out for them. It's it's not an easy job being a member. Uh, they they are elected to to with the same the same kind of qualifications that we think we all have up here, um, and they know just as much as we do, which is outstanding. Uh, what what has to happen is we've we've got to be able to in our own little silos. Uh, convince them that this is what is important and then we go to the bigger picture so we can cover the the waterfront on on children and family issues it's um there's always something that's that's a hot item that uh, the legislature pays a lot of attention to uh and rightfully so like this year the the nursing shortage is going to be a major issue in the legislature particularly in the budgetary process um we hope because there's, there seems to be additional revenue coming forward on a regular basis now that um, when those revenue estimating conferences keep coming out, those numbers will keep going up and there'll be enough in, enough in the budget for everybody to succeed in their, in their programs. Everybody thinks that theirs and their specific ideas and, and nuances and programs are the ones that are the most important. I certainly do. Uh, I'm not different than Phyllis or, or, or right. anybody else. We we just have to um, you have to do your part and make sure that your message is clear and your message is sync and and you know that you can get it over and and um, uh, that's that's it's the most humbling process that I've ever been through and I, this is my overall probably 40th year of doing this um, and I tell my wife every year that that I hate my job and I'm never going back and of course I do so uh, we all we all work hard and and make sure that it, that um, not only your own uh, self-serving interests, but all those of your colleagues are covered as well.
0: Well, starting with you, Doug, and going around the circle here uh, during the few moments we have left, this session is, to many observers, one of the most divisive that they have ever seen. A lot of culture war issues flying back and forth, and many other, I don't want to call them distractions or you know, very important things, but not really so much the nuts and bolts issue. Is children's welfare one of those matters that everybody can get behind, regardless of party or political leaning? Doug, do you think this is something everyone can say, yeah, we we have to support this?
2: There, there's absolutely no doubt about that, Tom. Um, we heard uh, from Senator Aaron Bean last night say that children's issues are nonpartisan. And we have to we have to preach that on a regular basis to make sure that everybody understands it particularly our, 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 our constituencies because uh, you know, everybody wants to think that their idea or their program or their need is more important than anybody else's. Uh, but as long as we keep the children's issues in, in that vacuum of not having any political pressure from either side, uh, the better served we are. Okay, it's, Phil- it's going to be uh, it's going to be a long haul, but we'll get there.
0: Okay, Phyllis Khalifa, same thing. Is that is something again that you can align people, regardless of the way that they view the world politically, or uh, even you have some constituency pushback? You know, if people are uh, low income and the the kids can't read, well, that's their own fault. And they need to pull themselves up by the bootstrap. You have heard all that stuff there. Can you make the case that this is something that is? as senator and being said nonpartisan, and everyone can can jump in here
1: absolutely and i agree with doug that i i think we're very fortunate that that children they're not born republican or democrat they are born just waiting for for us actually to to create a world where they can thrive so no i think that you can always frame the argument uh, about what's good for children from various perspectives and the bottom line is when when you know all children all children need to thrive and we need to create those environments and those policies that allow that to happen so i think there's um there's certainly an interest and a desire on behalf of all the legislators that are downtown that um they want what's best for florida and they know that investing in children makes a difference now sometimes we may disagree about how to get there You know, but I think that overall, there is a real commitment to making a difference, for sure.
0: Okay, Lauren Page, wrap it up with you. Uh, Same question. Nonpartisan for the kids?
3: Um, Yes, 100%. I think that also, if any senator or representative is, well, all the senators and representatives who are in office, they were children once as well. And they understand how, they, they wouldn't have gotten to their position that they are right now without literacy and also so many other people in this nation could not get to where they are right now without literacy. I mean, literacy gives you healthcare, jobs, insurance, so many opportunities beyond anything that I can explain. So I think that 100%, whatever side anyone's on, they just, they need to come together and if they don't, they need to do it for the children, um, not for themselves. They need to do it for the children and see the children's needs above anyone else is because we are the future generation and we're the children of today, but we're the future leaders of tomorrow. So one day we will be in your shoes. And the only people that can defend us right now are these representatives and senators who are in these positions.
0: Well, Lauren Page, number one, I think that the books that the hundreds of thousands of books that you have distributed through your uh, organization, uh, page by page, book drive program, are far more fascinating and uplifting than any bill analysis that these folks will have to read in the course of the session but as long as we have future leaders like yourself that are keeping the pressure on the leaders of today i have a strange feeling that we will be in much finer fettle than otherwise we might be It's been a delight and a joy to meet you. And Dr. Phyllis Khalifa, President and CEO of the Children's Forum, we thank you for being part of this very special Perspectives. And Doug Sessions, Jr., the... uh award winner of the child's advocacy award this year thank you for being part of the show as well good luck down there folks and and a special shout out to to a previous child's advocacy award winner uh, jack levine of four generations institute who helped uh, put this entire panel together and helped with a lot of the logistics behind the scene Appreciate it, Jack. We'll have you back on the air soon, too. And thank you all for being part of Perspectives, produced by WFSU Public Radio in Tallahassee. Thanks to Taylor Cox, Evan Rossi, Paul Dam, Amy Diaz de Viegas, Tricia Moynihan, Lydell Rawls, many, many more. Our director of content, Kim Kelling, is our executive producer. And I'm Tom Flanagan. I hope you can join us again next week for another Perspectives from WFSU Public Media. Take care.